How many of you are ready? I mean, you're ready. Ready for the second coming of Christ. How many of you are ready for the rapture of the church? They're not the same. It's the rapture you need to be ready for. That was a trick question. Ready at any moment. How do you be ready? How do you answer that question? How am I supposed to be ready? What do I do? What does it mean to be actively ready? Let's take a look at that today. Chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, is, it's all a, it's an unfolding story. It actually picks up on the, the warnings from the previous passage, which we looked at last week, beginning in verse 13, chapter 12, verse 13 through 35. And just summarize it real quick. Someone in the crowd wanted Jesus to intervene on some money issue between he and his brother. And Jesus used the opportunity to say, guys, greediness is not good. You're being greedy. Watch out for greed. And he tells a parable of a man who wanted to retire and stockpile everything he had and just live at ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so God says, Jesus tells his disciples and the crowd that's there, and it's a large crowd we see in previous contexts, in the thousands, watch out for greed. You see, that's what we do. One of the things we do in this world when we're not ready is we're thinking about wealth. We're thinking about a retirement. We're thinking about putting everything together. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to think about those things. It's not. But to be consumed with them for the purpose that this guy is that Jesus tells this parable about, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 12, is about that's all you're living for. That's all your hope is to live happily ever after with your money. Jesus says, that's greed. That's not waiting for me. He moves on in verse 22, and he tells him, for this reason, I tell you, don't worry about your life. So watch out for greed. Don't worry about your life. And yet we have a world full, I even dare say a church full, not ours per se, but the church universal, full of worried people. Worry is a result of not trusting, not trusting God, not trusting Christ. Being at odds with God will make you worried about everything. And the world wants you to be worried. Politicians want you to be worried so they can be your savior. That's what election year is. Seems like every year is an election year. Someone trying to tell you what your terrible plight is, we're going to deliver you. And then the next year, someone's going to deliver us from them. They make us worried. That's their goal. If we're not worried, we're not tuning in. And we're not going to vote. Jesus says... For this reason, don't worry about your life. Beginning in verse 32, he says, um, yeah, verse 32, he says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Don't be greedy. This world is not the end all. Don't worry about your life. God's in control. Don't be afraid, little flock. Jesus is saying, I've got this. And yet we... Humans and even we Christians walk around worried, frightened. What's going to happen? We see things unfolding today in our world that are prophesied in the Bible to happen. That should make us rejoice. Not worry us. Hey, God, your word actually is. Once again, we see it unfolding in its truth. We rejoice. And he closes the context there, at least in that particular measure there in verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? Where your heart, your mind? It's not talking about this bodily organ that beats 70 times a minute or however often it beats. 
It's, it's about your mind. Where is your mind? That, that's what controls everything. What are you thinking about? What propels you? What frightens you? What frightens you in one hand, and then what does your mind take you to say, no, God's in control. I'm not going to give in to that worry. And so we try to put our heart where our heart needs to be in order to not be greedy, to not worry, to not fear. Let's transfer our mind from the thoughts of fear and greed to that which is calm and peaceful. Everybody here like calm, peacefulness? I love it. I love quiet, looking out over something beautiful, even if I'm just looking at the back of my eyelids and it's peaceful. That's wonderful, is it not? I love that. I like it too much, no doubt. But we're all after that. That's why Jesus, I love that when Jesus appears, the first time he appears after his resurrection, what does he say? First word, peace be with you. I mean, what were the disciples doing? They're hovering in the upper room and they're worried to death. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We saw Jesus die. Mary Magdalene saying he rose from the dead. They're probably thinking he got stolen. What are we going to do? They're going to kill us just like they killed Jesus. Bam. Guys, peace be with you. I'm here. I'm on my throne. I've got this. I've got this. So how do we get past it? The next section tells us, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Quite literally in the Greek text, it's you be. That's all it says. Be. You know, the be verb, be. The word readiness isn't even in the Greek text, but that's what it's implying. You be. Your loins girded. Your lamps lit. Be. You. Be what? My loins are girded. The strange thing about... I don't know when pants were created, but I love the day they were created. People should stop saying it's better than sliced bread. We should say that's better than, than pants. Because there was a day when everybody wore, sh- wore girdles, dresses. So if a man or if anyone, even a woman, if you wanted to run, if you needed to, to be unfettered, unhindered, you'd pull your girdle up and you'd stuff it in the belt. You know, you wore a long gown and you pulled it up. If you needed to run, you stuffed it in your belt. That's what he's saying. Be ready. Be girded. Gird that belt. The kids this week looked at the, the armor of God, faith, and the belt, that belt of, of truth. You, you buckle that belt of truth and you, everything hinges on that. Pull your dress up, even you guys, and stick it in your belt. And now you can move around for action. We know the truth. The truth sets us free, does it not? Some of you are going, huh? Others of you know exactly what it means. The truth set you free from lies. And so he says, be dressed in readiness, your loins girded, be, and keep your lamps lit, have the light on. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. Now, this is not the wedding feast that Jesus is going to. Um, what, he, what he pictures here, what Jesus pictures here in this parable is a master of a house, and the master of a house would have uh, slaves, Slaves. Now, slavery back then wasn't in 17th, 18th, 19th century England and the United States. Slaves were, just so you know, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament even, certainly in the, the day of the, of the Roman Empire, slaves were uh, typically captured. They were prisoners of war. They became slaves. Uh, they were um, uh, babies born to slaves. 
They were people that would sell themselves to slavery. It actually gave them a better life because they didn't have the, uh, uh, the means otherwise to take care of themselves in the Roman Empire. And it was uh, done from uh, uh, what we might call infanticide as a result or at least contrary to infanticide. If you didn't want a baby in the Roman Empire, you didn't abort the child in the womb, you had the baby and then you abandoned the baby. You wouldn't put it on a street corner and you left. Others would come along or they might come along if they got there before the baby died, take the baby, raise the baby, and it would be a slave. And so these slaves were in households. Wasn't such a horrible thing, but it wasn't such a great thing for everyone. It certainly wasn't based on race, though. And so what we have pictured here is the master of a house full of slaves and a chief steward, a chief slave. The master's going to go to a wedding. Now, weddings in those days lasted up to a week, even two weeks at a time. And so to go to a wedding, aren't you glad that's not the case today? Isn't it wonderful that times change? Especially when you're the preacher. I'm trying to get out before the serving of the cake right here. You've got to find a place to stay for a week. Um, so you didn't know when he was going to return. The master's leaving. He says, okay, guys, I'm leaving. I've got to go to a wedding on the other side of town, and I'll be back when I'm back. And so that's the, that's the picture here. Like, be like men. You and I are to be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns. We don't know when he's coming back from the wedding. He might stay one day. He might stay 14 days. And then he's got the time to travel back. We don't know. Be like him that, that are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Be like those people. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. On the alert. Blessed. So Jesus is saying he's putting this to people. This is how he illustrates how you and I are to overcome greed, to overcome our worry, to overcome fear. Be ready. When you're looking for Christ, you're not thinking about the garbage of the world. Isn't that right? If you transfer your mind from thinking about your, pardon the expression, your pathetic lives... That's when we get depressed, when we sit back and think about our lives. Oh, no, what do I have to do? Oh, no, I did this or I did that. If you're living with guilt in the past and you dwell on that, of course you're going to be depressed. Of course you're going to need drugs. Take your mind off of you and put it on God. How can I start? Start reading the Bible. Start getting something to think about. Attend church. Listen to some sermons. Books on audio tape. Books on video, videotape, that's kind of an 80s thing, but you get the point. It's like that with, with phone books. But move your mind from you onto something or someone else. Entrench yourself in the problems of someone else. Think about them. That way when they ask you how you're doing, defer. Forget me, how are you doing? You told me a lot of things about you last week. I'd like to know how you're doing because I've been praying for you all week. When you take your prayer time off of you and onto someone else... It's amazing how your world changes. I know at first hand I'm a pastor. I've got a lot of people to pray for. I recommend it. And so when you're thinking about the coming of Christ, you're waiting for the coming of Christ. As these slaves are doing, is he here? I don't know, but keep the lights on because he'll be here any day. He could be here any time. We don't know when he's coming back. Note this, verse 37. I don't think this is anywhere in the New Testament. And I'll admit, I've glossed over it practically all my life and have never seen this. And I've read Luke more times than I can count. And I've glossed this over. Maybe you haven't. Blessed are those, verse 37, uh, slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say that he will gird himself to serve 
and have them recline at the table. I've missed that for years. We think of Jesus coming back and we're going to serve him. No. Be on the lookout because when he arrives, you're going to be there. You're going to look. You'll be peering through the window. Here he comes. Get those, light, those lamps lit because they didn't have lights back then. Turn the lamp on. Get the oil ready. In fact, you can read this in a parable form in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, the parable of the ten virgins. Those that had their lamps lit and were ready, they got welcomed into the feast. Those that didn't and fell asleep, the door was closed on them. So as they're peering through the window, they see their master coming. Master comes in. He doesn't even have to knock on the door. They're opening the door for him. He comes in. You might expect that the slaves would go, Master, how was your trip? Was it okay? Please sit down. We've got a drink here for you. We've made you some hors d'oeuvres, and we've got a meal coming for you. Blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what the second coming is. According to this parable, when the master comes back, he's going to be serving us. Hey, Jesus, can I have a little more cheese over here? Jesus, the chip bowl has gone dry here. I'll be right there. Can I get a straw, Jesus? It sounds absurd, doesn't it? And yet that's exactly what it says. That he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. You know, we get a picture of this in John 13. You know, Jesus disrobes everything but his undergarment And he goes around and he washes the feet of his disciples on the night before he died. And in so doing, he pictures the the Son of God, God Almighty, the eternal creator, became flesh, stripped his clothing, got on his knees, and washed the filthy feet of those filthy disciples. A picture of what he did. Not only of his humility but of a prophecy of what he will do when he returns. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be like Peter going, Jesus, I need some more cheese, but I'll get it myself. Oh, no, no, no. Because remember, Peter said, you're not going to wash me. Oh, Jesus said, if I don't wash you, Peter, you can have no part. Well, then wash my whole body for crying out loud. So instead of getting up, I'll get this, Lord. Have you ever been to a restaurant? You know, and the water pitcher is right over there, and you're waiting for the waiter or waitress. You go, you know, I'll get it myself. They're busy. No, no, Jesus will be right there. I'll get the straw. I said I'd get your straw. But, Lord, I see there's like uh, 500 million people over there in the, in the west wing over there, corner of, of heaven. They need straws too. Don't worry, Lance. I'm omnipresent. I'll get you your straw, a little extra cheese, some jalapenos for my heavenly queso. He's going to serve us. Folks, if that's not a picture of what service is, I don't know what is. Our God did not come to lord over us per se, and yet we bow to Him as Lord. True leadership is depicted in service. I had to grow and learn that as a pastor. You know, you get titles like pastor, senior pastor. Um, uh, One guy called me one time, the man, you're the man. Or you're, what, what, what did one girl call me one time? Big time Christian. You know, pastors are big time Christians. Um, elder, you take on, I'm, I'm an elder here. And you'll address me as elder, and reverend, brother, doctor, elder, presbyteros, bishop. Those are all labels and titles of me up here and you down here. No. Now, God didn't call elders of a church. I, I, I've learned to loathe that, that phrase, elders. 
I really, pardon me, it's a biblical word. I know God made it. But the way it's been abused, even at this church in the past, it's not a group of men that rule. If it's not a group of men that serve, it's not a group of men you should submit to. Jesus depicted himself as the servant when he was here and when he returns. And he will wait on them. Verse 38, whether he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them so Finds them so blessed are those slaves. You want to be blessed? You know, the, the, the third, the second watch of the night, I'm told, is 10, or 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, the third watch would be 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's the night, the night shift. Now, that doesn't mean we can't go to sleep. It means that whatever we do, we're watching and waiting. We're not going to be caught in some act, doing something, being in some place where we would be humiliated to be caught if Jesus came back at that moment. Doing something, thinking something. We're ready. Jesus, can I go to bed? I'm a little tired. Of course you can go to bed. Be caught sleeping. Be caught sleeping at a time when you're supposed to sleep so you can get up and go to work. Bring honor and glory to me. It's about active waiting. It's about the last words of your mouth, from your mouth before you go to sleep. Perhaps in the middle of a prayer that you don't stay awake long enough to say amen to. It's about saying, God, you be glorified. I love you, Lord. Thank you for the day, the gifts of the day, even though I feel miserable. And then the last thing you remember is saying I was miserable. You wake up the next day going, I don't think I said amen, Lord. It's the last thought in your mind, praising God for who He is. It's active waiting. I'm going to look, turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, if you want to go with me. Hebrews, it's right before James, and it's right after uh, Philemon, which is like one page long. So if you're in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, you'll be in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 27, I'm going to read verse 27 and 28. The writer of Hebrews says in 9.27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, note that, to those who eagerly await Him. What if that phrase wasn't there? It would just say, he's going to return. He's not going to come here to deal with, it's going to be offered to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time for salvation, not to bear people's sins. He did that the first time. He's coming back to save, ultimately save all who trusted in him. But he's coming back for those who eagerly await him. So you have to ask yourself, we have to ask ourselves, are we eagerly awaiting Christ or does the thought come to us from time to time? Maybe only when we're at church and we hear a sermon like that. Are you eagerly awaiting Him when you go to bed at night? Are you eagerly awaiting Him when you wake up in the morning? Do you eagerly await Him when you read the Word? Oh, wait a minute, I don't read the Word. Start reading the Word. Talk of Jesus' coming is throughout the Word. It's something to think about. It's something to dwell upon. He's coming back for those who eagerly await Him. For those who are indifferent to Him, well, we're going to get what's going to happen to them as this unfolds. But be sure of this. You know, when Jesus says be sure of this, He doesn't say something to think about, food for thought, 
take it or leave it. If Jesus says, be sure of this, I'm listening. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known, that's going to be the chief steward, master's gone, the chief steward of the house, the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Well, that's common sense, right? I mean, a thief, if he's a good thief, is not going to announce his coming. You know, sending out cards, hey, I'm coming to rob your house next week, this day, and this time. That's a bad thief. You're ready for that thief. That thief's going to fail. A good thief comes when he's not expected, when he's least expected. Do you know throughout the New Testament, that's how Jesus' coming is depicted? Like a thief? Now, here's the rub. The second coming of Jesus Christ is not like a thief. Not like, not like the rapture, anyway. I mean, Jesus talks about the second coming of Christ, of his, his own coming. In remarkable detail. To the point where you can almost count to the day when he's coming back. After certain events begin to take place. Turn with me, if you would. We're going to go back to the left in Matthew's gospel. We could do it in Luke's gospel, but I don't want to ruin it. I've got to preach that in a couple of weeks. So let's go back and see what we've seen from Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Stay with me on this. This is very important. It's important for your hope. It's important for your Ability to wait, not just patiently, but eagerly. In Matthew 24, Jesus summarizes, here are the events that will accompany the end of time. He, these are the events that will accompany, that will precede my second coming. He gives a, basically just a run-through in chapter 24, verses 9 through 14. Just overviews it. They'll deliver you to tribulation. He's talking to the disciples. To the twelve, they'll deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another, hate one another. We've seen that in the history of the church. False prophets will arise, will mislead many. All summarized, that happened then. That's happening even today, even in our day, in our city. Lawlessness has increased. We've seen that happen. Just a big summary of end times there up through verse 14. Jesus picks up the end times that precede his coming, right at what we call the midpoint of the tribulation. What's the tribulation? The tribulation, I'm going to put a bunch of passages together, and for those of you who have never heard this before, your head is going to spin. That's why it's good for you to read the blogs that come out over the course of the week, because all of my notes are there. But you can also look down in your Bible if it's got a Thompson chain reference. You see little A's and little B's, C's and D's, and you you look at them. You've got to put these on to see those. You've got to go down in either the middle of your Bible or the bottom of your Bible, and you see the cross references. But here's what he's talking about. Here's what will unfold that lead up to the end times. This is very important. I should say that lead up to the, to the second coming of Christ. The first thing that will happen is that the 70th week of Daniel must transpire. God promised 70 weeks for Daniel, 70 weeks of years. It equates to 490 years. 490 years. How about that? 490. When does that begin? Well, we know when it began. I'm not going to confuse you with all of the uh, um, all of the, the dates of which it began, but just note for your Bible, you might write um, March the, the 1st um, A.D. or 444 B.C. This is when that began. Problem is, after the first 69 weeks, 483 years in, it stopped. And when you look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, when you get to verse 27, there's a distance between the last week and the previous 69. The previous 69 we know ended, according to the prophecy, when the Messiah came and was cut off. The first 483 years ended. 
And the Jews were, their temple was destroyed 35 years later, and it was done. Judaism, however, came back onto this planet, I should say came back onto the earth in 1948, and the Jews have had a, a state in Israel. Not the whole, the whole world doesn't like it necessarily, but the Jews today are looking to rebuild their temple. Daniel 9.27 says that there will be a temple, and there will be someone who comes in to make a treaty with Israel for seven years. That's the last of the 70 weeks. That'll take the 483 years and bring them to 490, and we'll complete the prophecy. You still with me? No, you're not. Seven years are still unaccounted for in Daniel 9.27. It speaks in the middle of that week, Daniel 9.27, there will be a covenant broken. In the middle of that week. And there will be what's called the abomination of desolation, or really just living Bible version, a really bad thing. This world leader who brokered this peace treaty with Israel will break his peace... And he will no longer allow Israel to worship their God, and he will become their God. He will set up an image of himself in their temple. By the way, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There must be a temple for this to begin to be inaugurated, which is kind of a redundant way of saying that Begin and inaugurated mean the same thing. So when Jesus picks it up here in Matthew 24, 15, he picks it up in the time right there at the midpoint of the tribulation, that's seven years, we call it the tribulation. And he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's the, the temple. And then he says, let the reader understand. He's given the disciples everything that's going to happen to them in verses 9 through, through 14. But when he says, let the reader understand, he's talking to a future generation. They're going to have to read about this. That's you and me. We're reading it. Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, once there's a temple rebuilt, in the middle of that seven-year time period right there, it's going to be broken. And things are going to get a little bit hairy. Leave town, Jesus is saying. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ cannot occur until that seven-year time period is over. And it can't be over unless it's begun, and we know it begins when a world leader rises up and makes a peace treaty with Israel and allows them to rebuild their temple. Folks, that has not happened. When that happens, the seven years begins. The tribulation begins. Three and a half years in, it will be broken. Three and a half years later, Jesus returns. If it hasn't begun then I can promise you Jesus isn't about to return, is he? We can safely say Jesus is not coming back today. So what are we to be alert for? Can we sit back, throw up our legs and say, this doesn't mean anything to us? No. Because you see, the Apostle Paul tells us what he calls a mystery, the rapture of the church. Look over with me. I'm in 1 Corinthians 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke... John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. If you're in 2 Corinthians, you might discover that you have gone too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be in verse 50. I'm 
Mind you, if we read together, if we had the time to read all of Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21, we would see that the second coming of Jesus Christ is no mystery. Jesus himself told his disciples over and over, here's my coming. These events will precede my coming. The great darkness of that day, it'll be so horrible in that tribulation time period, it'll be a time the world has never known nor will ever know thereafter. Everything Jesus has said about the second coming, the second coming of Jesus is no mystery. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, he said, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not entering it into these bodies with these bodies. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Folks, that's not a mystery if you're thinking about it in terms of the second coming. We know the second coming, the dead will rise. Why would Paul say, I'm telling you a mystery if he's talking about something everyone already knew about? But he's not. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We is probably emphasized there. We will not all sleep or die, that is. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. But the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. If you're in 1 Corinthians, look over at the, the sister passage we look at in 1 Thessalonians. So from 1 Corinthians, you'll go 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul speaks of this same event that he's talking about to the Corinthians, telling them a mystery. Again, this mystery can't be the second coming. That's already been talked about. Paul's talking about something else. And we need him to talk about something else because I just told you that the second coming of Christ, at least for us, is not an imminent event. It cannot occur at any moment. Paul says in to the Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, the dead in Jesus will come back with Jesus if they are in Christ, that is, if they're Christian. Verse 15, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture. Rapture is a Latin word. Caught up or snatched. Then we who are alive, they're going to go first. They're going to come out of their graves in an instant before you can say, hey, look, the graves are opening up. You want to have time to say that. They will rise up. Their bodies will be given to them. They're already with Jesus in heaven. They're clothed with heaven, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They're clothed with heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Think about your loved ones who are in Christ. Clothed with heaven. They will, however, get their glorified body in an instant. Bam! And they meet Jesus in the clouds. And those who are alive at the time, verse 17, we who are alive will remain and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? On the earth? No, in the air. That's not the second coming. And so we will always be with the Lord. Folks, what I'm telling you is that Jesus, without using the word rapture, without ruining Paul's later revelation of the mystery, is saying, that Jesus is saying, I could come back at any time. We know his second coming is preceded by events that haven't even begun to take place. So, Paul, so Jesus is talking about the rapture of the church, which, by the way, could happen at any moment. There are no signs that precede it. There is nothing that can happen that you're going to say, rapture's got to be right around the corner now. 
I'm putting my pajamas on and getting on the, the roof of my house. That's not readily waiting. That's weird. <laughs> That's hail bop Comet stuff. So when he says in verse 40, be ready, I'm coming like a thief at an hour you, don't not, you do not know. You and I, folks, are to be ready, not for his second coming, but for the rapture of the church. And for those of you, I don't mean to be ugly. I, I have been sarcastic about it in the past. I, sometimes I try to make my point through sarcasm, and I fail <laughs> all the time, miserably. But maybe you're one of those people that believes, I believe that the rapture will occur at the midpoint. Well, then this passage today means nothing for you. If you don't believe that Jesus is coming until the midpoint after the tribulation, there is no imminency for you. In fact, if you're living in the tribulation at that point, just count off 1,260 days, then get on your roof in your pajamas. He's coming that day. There's no imminence in that either. Others believe that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. They're post-tribulationists, which the first question I ask is, what's the point? Rapture, bring you up, bring you back down so we can live on the earth. That, that absurd anyway. But I have one family friend that, that believes that. Not from here. And they have babies and they're scared out of their minds for their babies. We're going to have to raise our children. We're going to have to go through the tribulation. What are we going to do? Jesus said, don't live in fear. How can you not live in fear? By knowing He's going to rescue us before that time. By knowing He's on His throne. There is no imminence if you believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, a post-tribulation rapture, or if it's just going to happen at the second coming. Maybe you were raised Presbyterian, you were raised in an amillennial church, and you're, you're just kind of hanging on to us dispensationalists here at this church. Folks, with all due respect to my amillennial brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are my brothers and sisters in Christ, they are lazy in Bible interpretation. Lazy. Yeah, I'd tell R.C. Sproul, laziness. There are too many passages throughout the Bible to just throw away and say, I just believe this. he's going to come back and it's going to be done. No! I'm a Bible scholar. I have to read this. It says what it says. I'm going with it. So when Jesus says, come at any hour, at any moment, and one that you do not expect... He says it also, Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, I'm coming like a thief. Peter says it, 2, Tim, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, coming like a thief. Stealthily, unexpectedly. It happens when you don't think it's going to happen. Maybe you were a teenager once, and you, uh, mom and dad went out of town. They left, and you thought, par Hey, we'll be back in two weeks. We're going on a cruise. And you're thinking, they can't come back early. They're on a ship, the Mediterranean, party time. My parents did this to me once. Um, I don't know why. I mean, they trusted me, but they came home three days early from a trip. Now, we didn't have texting back then, and I wasn't following them on my phone. Couldn't do that in the 80s, right? I see where you are. Boom, boom, boom. Wouldn't that be great if we could see Jesus? Ah, Jesus is still over there. He can't get over here. He's there. I still got three hours before he can get here. It comes home three days early. Two, three days early. Something like that. And it's a Friday night. And then I see, I hear the ruckus at the back door. What the heck's that going on? It's like 1030 at night. Open the door and it's dad. And he goes, he looks, he looks at me. Opens the screen door. Had a screen door. Looks in. And he looks at me and he goes, you party animal. There was nothing happening. 
I'm going, well, did you need to know that? I mean, what I was then, I still am now. My wife looks at me every day, you are such a party animal. I announce every night, I'm going to bed at 10. My son, unfortunately, is 26 years old, and he is taken after dad. And he really enjoys it when he's at our house to announce that he's going to bed at 10 o'clock. Now, the point being is that there are some that are going to be having that party. Jesus isn't coming back. We got time. We could do whatever we want, same way you could when our parents were gone. Oh, watch out. Actively waiting is my parents could be home at any, any moment. And my mom likes the, the tables shined with pledge. Back then you had wooden tables. You had to use pledge. Any of you know, remember this? Wax on, wax off sort of thing? Wax those tables. Vacuum that carpet. Mom would be overjoyed to come into a, a house cleaned. And it was my joy to give her that, frankly. I mean, I, I was a clean guy. Mom made me clean. It was... I kind of got those jeans, but it made her happy. And I liked making my mom happy. All the more with Christ, I'm coming back. What will I find, Lance? What will I find, folks, in your life when I get there at an hour when you were worried about how you were going to pay your bills? Or an hour when you were worried about whether you were going to be faithful to your spouse? At an hour when you decided to watch something you know your eyes are not supposed to look at. What if I came in and I just caught you flirting with somebody you ought not be flirting with? Oh, be found in the Word of God, dwelling upon the Word of God. Peter said what you and I would say. Verse 41, Lord, you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Is this a test? Do we need to take notes? Jesus is the Messiah. Stay with this logic. Jesus is the Messiah. The disciples know this. The the Messiah is calling himself the Son of Man, which is another prophecy in Daniel's prophecy, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man prophecy says that he will come right at the end of the last world empire after the death of that world leader. That's why Jesus will come again. The Son of Man, when that world leader comes about, dies, Jesus will come and set up his kingdom then. But they don't know that. They don't know. Peter doesn't know that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to be arrested by the Jews, handed over to the Romans, crucified on a cross, to be raised three days later, to ascend into heaven 40 days later, and to promise a return. He has no idea. To Peter and the rest of the disciples, the Messiah has already come. Jesus, what are you doing saying that you're leaving? Are you comparing yourself to the master who's leaving? Is going to come in an hour we don't expect? What are you talking about? We would ask the same thing. You are the Messiah, right? You're already here. They don't know about two comings of Christ. So Jesus finishes it, and he says in verse 42, The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible servant whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them the rations at the proper time? In other words, who is he going to appoint over his church? You see, Jesus established his church and left. And he's coming back, and we don't know when. According to the rapture, it could come at any moment. So, who has he put in charge of his church? Well, people like me. 
Sadly, people like me, Lance Waldy, I'm, I'm an, a shepherd, an overseer, a bishop of a church. It is my job, my task to oversee. I do that with a handful of other men at this church and the deacons that help. And many of you who may not have the office, you also oversee the church. We love the church, don't we? I, however, am in charge. I am one of these people. I am the faithful, or supposed to be the faithful one, because Jesus says, blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. And he goes back, go back to verse 42. Who is the faithful and sensible steward? Who is he? Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Who is this person? He's the one that's waiting. He's the one that's feeding. Feeding the church God's word. Note what God will do. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. So, Lance Waldy, elders of a church, people who oversee Christ's church in an official capacity, our job is to make sure that you, his flock, are fed, cared for, prayed for, loved. If you're visiting, you note my tone I have been told by my son who goes to another church now, a very good church, from a very kind pastor whom I love and admire. I was at a golf tournament uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, and and I I shared the gospel there that day. And Daniel said once again, he said, Dad, I love Ken. And and Ken Ramey is my good buddy at Lakeside Bible Church. And he's a great pastor and a wonderful teacher. But Daniel said, I'm still amazed at how direct you are compared to Ken. And this is what he grew up with, how direct I am. So I learned that I'm direct from... My boy. My boy. It's my best rendition of the Godfather. My boy. Tells me the truth. I was out with some old friends last night, and and one was recalling the day 35 years ago when when I was refereeing a football game. And a lady was upset with me because her son got hurt. And I said, lady, it's a full contact sport. And my buddy Jeff said, we were appalled that you would say that. You said, lady, it's a full contact sport. And I said, I guess I've always been a bit direct, huh? If you're that, if you're going, I'm, I'm used to kind speaking pastors. Folks, no tongue speaking here. My tone, me defending myself, is all about my love for you. My love for the flock of Christ. I want you to get the truth. I may not speak in a real kind, sweet voice. It's just not the way I'm wired. That's not who I am. I know some people loathe me for that and don't come back. And and I don't want to say it's okay because I don't want it to be okay. I love you. It is my task to give you God's word, to plead with you, to wait eagerly for him. I do it with tears. I'm about to crack right now. I mean it. I love the people of God. That doesn't mean I'm always in love with you. Or you in love with me. We put up with each other, don't we? You more towards me than me towards you. But that's what the slave does, the one in charge. What's wrong with our pastors and the churches today? They don't even feed the flock. Remember when Jesus told Peter, asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What are the three things Jesus said? One thing three times. If you love me, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. They're my lambs. They're my sheep, Peter. You feed them. That's my job. That's why I keep you for a whole hour. 
feeding you God's Word. I know you get a little antsy at 35, 45 minutes. I see this little move. I see some of you try to do it real subtly. You're like, because oh, I'm looking right at you. I get it. An hour's a long time. But it's just an hour to be fed God's Word. I want to be found faithful when He comes back. Verse 45, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and get drunk, the master of that slave will come in a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know and will put him in the corner and tell him to take a time out. It doesn't say that. If you don't have a Bible, forget what I just said. It says he will cut him to pieces. You had my flock pastors you abused my people by not feeding them my word by leading them to believe that a women can be preachers by b that we can ordain homosexuals by c that you can live in an adulterous relationship outside of marriage you led my people to believe that filth which churches do all over the the world nowadays for those of you who are saying why don't you address these problems i just did I don't need to say anything more than these are sins. Pastors that allow it, that are okay with it, that him and haul around it. I saw Tim Keller being asked direct questions about homosexuality in hell. He couldn't answer. He's just him hauling around. Tim Keller. God bless his soul. He's with Jesus. I know he is. But I'm thinking, answer the question. Yes, homosexuality is a sin. So is heterosexual perversion. So is lying, thievery. So is disobeying your parents. Sin is sin. It falls short of God's glory. We are in need of a Savior. Receive Christ and be saved. These guys, this particular slave is saying, eh, he's not coming back. I can do whatever. Not only is he mistreating God's people, he's treating himself to drunkenness. Revelry. We see that in in the clergy today. They make a lot of money. They get drunk a lot. They enjoy what they do. But they do not feed Christ's sheep. They will be cut to pieces. Now, you've got masters that do well will be rewarded. I'm sorry, masters, you've got um, pastors that that do well and will be rewarded. You've got other pastors that don't and are going to be cut to pieces, assigned a place with the unbelievers. That's what it says at the end of verse 46. And assigned a place for the unbelievers. Matthew 24, 51 says assigned a place with the hypocrites. But you see, there's some responsibility with everyone, but there's more responsibility with the pastor. So here's what happens to the congregation. Under a boneheaded pastor. Verse 47. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. He's not going to get cut to pieces cut in pieces. This is you. This would be you going to a church where you're not being fed God's Word, where you're not being told to be ready for His coming. You're not alert. You're living your life as if this is your best life now. You care nothing for what God truly is. You just want to focus in on God is love. He loves me. I'm a really good person. He's delighted with me. No, that's a heresy. You're not good. We are not good people. We might do good deeds, but we are wicked to the core. Every one of us. People ask me why I say that. I say, because it's true. You can be nice and kind and do good things, but you can't get away from this mind here that is so full of wickedness. We're capable of anything and everything. So when you're under a pastor who never reminds you of that, 
And you're not thinking about His coming. You're acting in ways that are contrary to the way Jesus would have you acting. When He comes back, well, you might say, well, my pastor was terrible. True. But you're still going to pay. There are many lashes for that person. We might see here degrees of hell. The hottest of the hot are where those who have the responsibility to train and feed God's people don't. Hottest of the hot. A level up, a little cooler, air conditioner with no Freon. That's those who, who listened to the false teachers. Verse 48, you've got some that even have maybe a little bit of Freon. Verse 48, but the one who did not know it, that's people that are ignorant of everything. They go to church and they're ignorant of everything. You ever met somebody that goes to church and knows nothing about God's Word? They've heard the name Jesus, but they know nothing about Jesus. That's these people. The one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Yes, there are degrees of hell. There are degrees of heat in hell. It's all abandonment from God. It's all eternal damnation, eternal destruction, being destroyed over the course of eternity. According to first or Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it's a destruction over the course of eternity. From everyone. No, stay with me. I know it's almost over, and you're thinking it's Father's Day lunch, but listen. From everyone who has been given much, folks, everyone here has been given much. I don't know how much you're going to eat today, but everyone in this room is going to have lunch. If you, if you can't eat today, lunch today, please, I mean this, come forward and tell me, I have no lunch, I have no food. We will feed you. So I can say categorically, everyone here is going to eat today. You all have clothing on. You probably take a shower at least in the last day or two. You have running water. You can turn an air conditioner on. You probably have a, a vehicle or someone who, ha- who owns a vehicle. You can see. You're sitting in very comfortable chairs. You are hearing the Word of God. You have been given much. You and I are in this crowd. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. That household steward was given the words of God. He was given rule over the house of the master. Take care of my people. I'm coming back. I'm coming back at a time you don't know it. So be ready. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. What God has given, we are responsible for. Today, you and I are responsible to know that Jesus is coming at any moment. Any moment. How you treat your spouse, men, how you treat your your wives, your girlfriends, how you treat your animals, how you treat your enemies, how you treat your fellow drivers on the road. What you say to them when they drive by you and you don't like what they did. Jesus could come at any moment. You can tell those who get that and those who don't because those who get it live in a certain amount of godly fear. I don't want to be any, doing anything except what glorifies my God. Well, Lance, can I go home and take a nap at least? It is Father's Day, and the U.S. Open is on. Yes! Of course I'm going to say that. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's okay to do that. Lord, I'm relaxing so I can be ready for tomorrow. Now, if you do it every day, you're just lazy. You're not ready. If you're trying to make a lot of money for your own self, you're not ready. If you're working hard to make a lot of money so you can glorify God with it, 
make a lot of money. Jesus is coming back. His second coming is documented in Scripture. But the rapture of the church can happen at any moment. Any moment. And if you can live knowing He could be there at any moment, then you can live to His glory. Remember, Hebrews 9, 27, 28. Who's He coming back for? Those who are eagerly awaiting Him. If you miss the rapture, you're going to come to Harvest Bible Church and say, where is everybody? You're going to look around at the other unsaved people that attend this church. And you're going to say, I guess we weren't ready. I wasn't thinking about it. I, I guess those people that are gone were actually taking that seriously. There will be that day. It'll be a blip on the map. As I've said before, I don't even think it'll make the nightly news. Well, why would it? So few are going to be gone. Because so few that are waiting for Christ or that say they're waiting for Christ are actually thinking about Christ. It's going to be those that are thinking, waiting, eagerly expecting. And so when you come here and you're the only one or the only one among a few, you're going to go, I guess we weren't uh, eagerly awaiting Him. We knew He's coming back, but there was no eagerness in our awaiting. So which one are you? Jesus is coming back for those who eagerly await His return. Let's pray. Lord, for those in this audience who do not know Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, Lord, they must not know that they're sinners. They must not know that they're in trouble. Stir in their spirit and remind them they're sinners, fallen short of your glory, and hence in danger of eternal death. Remind them, Lord, from your word that while they were yet sinners, you died for them. And if they will receive you as Lord and God, they will be saved. I pray for all of us who claim to be saved, that the fruit of our lives would be that person, it is clear, is eagerly awaiting the return of his Savior and Lord. May that be who we are. May the world take note of us. If they make fun of us, let them make fun of us. May we be all the more encouraged by that. But may we truly not care, for we await you. Come, Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come. In your name we pray, amen. May God bless you men, women. Happy God the Father's Day. May Lord bless you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 